Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's uh, just after one minute past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Maybe listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet ooh, and salty. <laughs> My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Kate Mills. How, how are we doing today there, Bron? Was the that concept, threw you, didn't it? It was the concept of the salty that... <laughs> <laughs> Just got a bit excited there for a minute. Yeah, yeah I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. I realised something this morning. I'm staying with family in Northcote, and I realised that I'm not the only one that talks to Tim Thorpe when he's on the radio. Ah. And I, do you do that? No. Oh, like Tim, he was talking. He had trouble saying the word Birigara, so my auntie helped him out. <laughs> I was like Birigara, Tim, and I realised I do that too sometimes oh. when I'm at home. I have these conversations with Tim, and. Um, it, I think it's just his style of presentation. It feels like he's, you know, sitting in the lounge room there with you. Not the creepy way of sitting in your lounge room, but <laughs> sitting there having a conversation with you. It was fantastic and it was good to realise. So thank you, Tim. Excellent. Thank you, Tim. And uh, thank you, Andrew, uh, for Soulful Bits. And um, I missed who was presenting things to do today because I was doing something at the time. But thank you, whoever that was, whether that was Edith. I'm looking at Tim. He's busy. Yes, it was. It was Edith. Thank you very much, Edith. For it's, things yeah, it's just nice to have things to do today. It is. Now, yes. yes, it is. Hey, and this is your first time in the studio. It certainly is. It is so good to be back. Yeah. I'm so excited. It's so much easier to be in here than sitting at home. In a laptop, yeah. Yeah. Much easier. Hey, someone else who's going to join us very shortly uh, will be – actually, I, I haven't done my usual – you can catch Tim next Saturday and Sunday on Vital Bits, so I have to do that. Yeah. It's one of those, you know, things that I need to do and turn my phone off. <laughs> very smooth radio <laughs> this morning. Um, joining us in studio shortly will be Neil Blake, and this is very exciting because Neil hasn't been into the Triple R studios for a couple of years, I reckon. We can check that with him. Wow. We might have snuck him in at one point when there was a little little moment of reprieve in in various, you know, COVID safe protocols. But um yeah, very so exciting. Is it just Neil? It's not his brother or his um Oh his alter ego Captain, Captain Trash. Trash. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just Neil this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought it all might come out. It's been a while, he gets a bit excited, he could switch and chop between the two, who knows? <laughs> So uh, Neil is going to be speaking about this City Nature Challenge. Uh, it's a program that aims to see which city, this is global, can submit the most observations of native fauna. So it's coming up in late April, and but uh, Neil's going to give us a bit of a drum roll to that. So there's a lot of co- local councils taking part. Uh, looks like a really good initiative. Um, and also we'll be talking about citizen science, uh, which is his area of expertise, but different models of citizen science and some possible improvements in the future. Oh, there's always rooms for improvement. There is. Yes. Uh, okay, so that's Neil. Um, we've got a bunch of news we're going to catch up on. And uh, then we're going to be joined by Prue Francis from Deakin University. She's been talking to us a lot about ocean literacy. And um, last time we had Prue on, she was talking about uh, the, the idea of a blue curriculum. I love the idea of that. I like you just throw – it's like citizen science. You throw the word watch at the end of whatever you're doing and it becomes a citizen science project. <laughs> With true. marine stuff, you just put blue in front of it, the blue economy, the blue carbon, blue curriculum. It just seems to work. Hey, Cade. Yeah. Nerdy watch. 
Nudie watch, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't caught on yet, has it? It hasn't caught on yet, Bron. It um it's if you type that in I haven't typed that no, into no, the no, net to see what comes up. But, <laughs> I haven't uh, either, that could be why we haven't gone with that one. <laughs> <laughs> we are of course talking about nudie branks, um, which yes. is formerly known as the sea slug census, but I'll get onto that in a second. <laughs> and um yeah, the blue curriculum and Support that teachers need to develop one because it's all very good to say we need to have more marine education in our classrooms, but it doesn't just happen with click of the fingers, does it? No, the implication side of this, the, not the implication, the implementation side of this is going to be really interesting. And I think it's something that teachers are going to be excited to learn about. It's, you know, well, you should know you've been on Marinara for 20 years and I'm sure random people stop and have conversations with you about the marine environment, what you know, and there's always that thirst for knowledge around it. And so if you can arm teachers with it, I think it's going to be fantastic for that younger generation and they can take it home to their parents. Do you know how it comes out? It comes out in the quiz at work, the Friday quiz that we have to kind of wrap up the week, which is always a lot of fun. But every time there's a marine question, there's this expectation (laughs) (laughs) expectation that I'll know Uh, it. I'm like, oh, pressure. I always say if it's a question about whales or dolphins, do not ask me. That is... (laughs) Yeah, everyone has their superpower. That is my kryptonite as whales and dolphins. I know next to nothing about them, yeah. which is why we have Dave on the show. There was a there was a question um, in the the quiz. I'll look this one up, and it was about um, a fossilized octopus and what was different about it compared to its uh, its modern or well, current version of, of octopi. Oh, I'm failing. I'm, I'm totally, failing this. Totally going off on a tangent here. Okay. Um, and uh, what is it? It had ten arms, not eight. So like a squid a with a feeder? Decapus. Um, decapus. <laughs> I don't know if it was called that. <laughs> anyway, back to the newsroom. Yeah. So we'll <laughs> let's get back on That's track That's my here. word for the day. I'm going to see if I can work <laughs> it into a sentence. <laughs> Maybe don't look that one up either. Um, so where are we at here? We are, what were we talking about? Ocean literacy. <laughs> yes. So, yes, we'll talk to Prue about that. And, um, and the use of children's books to introduce marine science to the classroom too. So, so much good stuff going on in that space. Now, we did plan to have Jeff Maynard on the program and um, we advertised that via our Facebook page yesterday. Jeff's been caught up and held up in Adelaide and uh, hasn't been able to join us. So we've got a ton of news and bits and pieces we're going to bring to you as well. Yeah, and following on from Neil's stuff around the City Nature Challenge, I was going to talk about a platform which I call Facebook for Nerds. Um, that is a really good way for people to um, upload information from their photos so that it can be used by scientists. And cool. this platform is so far responsible for over 2,000 publications using the data that's been put on it. So I'll dig into that a little bit more as well. Fantastic. That is our program. That is. Over to the doctors. No, that is, that is what we'll be covering. <laughs> Let's. Uh, have you got some weather there? I do have some weather. Um, if you haven't been outside yet, get out amongst it. Uh, make sure the radios are nice and loud so you can keep listening to us. And if you're driving down the coast for a surf, good luck to you. There's a couple of foot of swell around today. Beautiful north- northerly winds at the moment. Uh, turning southwest later, so if you haven't jumped in the car yet, jump in the car, head down the coast, and you'll find a wave pretty much anywhere today. So today, I think we've got a top of 25, um, going up to 28 on Monday. 24 Tuesday, and then we're getting into that some more autumnal weather with like 1920s during the day, and then those nice crisp sort of 
cool nights that make it really easy to sleep, which will be fantastic. And not that much rain on the horizon either, so we've got some lovely weather there. So if you are planning on heading out or you're on your way down the coast, the low tide was about an hour ago at quarter past eight, and, and this is at Port Phillip Heads, and the high tide is at quarter to three. So time your surfs or time your dives around that. Excellent. I did see a weather warning um, that I will look up. Actually, I might do it when we put our first track on to bring to you about um, some big surf that's heading towards the New South Wales coast as a result of a trapped low-pressure system but in, somewhere in the Tasman Sea. Oh, there'd be some frothing surfers up there and maybe the eastern part of Victoria Yeah, will cop some of that. I'll, uh, I'll check that one out. It was one of those things I was scrolling through my phone and saw that and thought, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, here we go. I found it. No, I didn't. <laughs> I found another one. I'll look for it. There is um, some surf on the horizon if you're listening in New South Wales. Yes. 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 We'll see if we can get some more details for you. And one thing I wanted to mention quickly and then we'll go to a track is um, some correspondence we had from Rob Lorenzen and Spike, the national dog surfing champion. I don't know if he still is actually because they've just been to Noosa to um, compete in the National Dog Surfing Championships. So there's a competition, a dog surfing? Yeah. So, oh, so I'd love to know how they judge. Yes. This. Well, I'm hoping that we'll have Rob back on the show next Sunday to talk oh, wow. to talk about this one specifically. Um, and But he did send us uh, a, a message via our Facebook page um, to say, uh, we're on the road back to Melbourne. This was a week ago, so I'm guessing they're back now. After the Dog Surf Comp at Noosa Festival of Surfing, uh, solid surf, powerful, made it tricky on the paddleboard, one one big dumper wave bounced Spike off the board and into strong rip. He tried to shoot through the crowd on the shore to the cafe on Hastings Street. He, <laughs> he is old and wise. And then this is an interesting observation. He said, I saw a dead stonefish in the Noosa River mouth. Is that unusual? Ah. To, to have one, I guess, that far south, but also in a, in a river mouth. So interesting. We'll try and chase that one up for you, Rob. Um, and, yeah, incredible scale by rains in the headwaters of Brisbane River, abundant water even inland near Mooney. So um, we'll try and catch up with Rob next week. I did hear him actually on um, uh, speaking with Virginia Trioli on oh, yeah. the ABC Morning Show during the week. So, yeah, look, Rob and Spike are becoming quite the dog surfing celebrities. Yeah, wow. They were here first, weren't they, Bron? Yeah. yeah. You are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. Neil Blake. Have you ever seen a pippy dance, Bron? No. It's spectacular, I can tell you. <laughs> they kind of do, don't they, Neil? They do, yeah. yeah. When they're trying to bury themselves, they're flicking their foot around and they'll flip and flop around on the shore and, you know, yeah. siphon water in and out and, yeah. I never thought of it as a dance, yeah. yeah they do look like they're enjoying themselves, though. Yes, they do, yes. <laughs> Are they, do they move a little bit like scallops when they move through the water column in that they kind of clo open and close their shelves and use that to no. propel themselves along? Uh, it's like they move with their tongue. Yeah, it's like what? they stick their foot out. Ah. and It's a dragging movement. Oh, mm. right. Yeah. Ah, so they're not exactly... Well, I think we're the ones who are meant to be wiggling our hips. <laughs> hey, welcome. This is so great. It is. I, I've forgotten all about this place, Bron. I hadn't seen it for so long and got lost trying to find it again. So. And, and seeing, seeing ourselves in, in three dimensions is pretty cool too. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, really a credit to everyone, particularly Kent, I think, that he's actually kept yep. the show on the road with uh, connecting all those uh, links, uh, <laughs> Skype and all that sort of stuff. Unbelievable, really. We're we're actually just um, thinking and talking about this when we had the song on that um, this is gonna, this is our first show in two years where we haven't used Skype. Mm. It's just it's glorious. Anyway, 
welcome. Yeah, great to be here. And uh, I have, want to start off speaking about the uh, City Nature Challenge, yes. which is uh, something that I was unaware of. Apparently it uh, started up in about 2016, a competition. You know, everything's got to be a competition between <laughs> Los Angeles and San Francisco to uh, see which city had the most uh, nature in it. So it's a way of uh, getting the community on, on board to actually submit photographs of uh, species that they encounter on the, in their suburbs. And um, so now it's spreading into an international event uh, that was actually in, I think, in Victoria, in Melbourne last year, but there were only a couple of uh, municipalities involved. But now th this year they, they've got, according to my good mate Doug Evans from Maroondah Council, uh, there's about 31 uh, municipalities actually on board. So, and they also want to include Port Phillip Bay. So it's not, uh -huh. a, not a municipality in itself. So, uh, and, and not necessarily um, terrestrial. So no, looking right. to include, yeah. oh, yeah, this, so this, is, this gets interesting, yes. Kate. So, yeah, it's, that's, it provides a great opportunity uh, to not only find out what species we've got out there, but get, getting more people being observant and actually going looking for stuff. You know? Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's, um, it's taken that concept of um, the sea slug census we were talking about before, also fish watch. Fish watch? Fish watch. count? Fish count. Great, Great Victorian, Victorian fish, fish count. <laughs> Thank you. You're just throwing watch on the end of words, aren't you, Bron? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just... I'm going off what you said before, yeah. and that's exactly what I was doing. Yeah. What I was doing. Um, but, yeah, to, to extend that out to cover multiple species, different types of animals, um, but, right. then, but then underwater as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it is within a defined period. It's actually over four days. Okay. I think it's April the 29th to the 2nd of May, so that's when... It started out a springtime thing, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere, but uh, uh, we, we have interesting things going on in, in the autumn period here anyway. So. How many councils are taking part in this, do you know? I think 31. For that sort. Oh, wow. Yeah, so That's pretty good. Mm. So are there battles within battles? So there's battles between the cities. Are there battles between the councils as well? Like, do they sort of have a bit of friendly rivalry there? Between uh, yeah, each I other? Yeah, I think that's, that's the aim of it. It's, yeah. all, it's all friendly, of course, but uh, if you don't actually have that competitive spirit, though, <laughs> then there's not going to be enough real promotion to make it a, a genuine uh, thing. So. Yeah. Do participants go to areas within their municipality where they know they're more likely to see native animals? So, like, parks and, you know, I'm green sure areas that would. are set aside? Yeah. yeah, but they might also be just encounter something in their backyard, into or, their backyard you know, as they're yeah. walking down the streets and suddenly there's a, an Australian admiral butterfly or something like that will turn up. So just take the opportunity as they arise. Yeah. And I said flying, but of course it's not just flying, is it? Because we've got little skinks running around in our yard at home. Yeah. So it could be pretty much anything. That's right. So How do you record the information if you don't know exactly what you're looking at? Well, that's the beauty of it. Uh, there is the iNaturalist platform, which people may be familiar with, which, uh, where people can submit photographs of uh, any species they see, and that gets uh, checked over by people with a scientific eye, and they can uh, give a species identification. So it's a good way of connecting with scientists who you've never ever met and you're never likely to, mm. but yes, it's collaborating between ordinary people everyday people and people with that kind of knowledge. 
And if you want to learn more about iNaturalist, just stay tuned because that was what I was planning on talking about in oh, the last right. segment today and how that works and how that's sort of set up. But the beauty of it is, as Neil was saying, if you don't know what it is, you just snap a photo, put it up there, identify it the best you can. So if it's a butterfly, you know it's a butterfly or it's a fish, just put it as fish. And what that does is that flags it in you know taxonic, taxonomic experts sort of around the world. And then they will come and have a look at your picture and be like, well, you know, based on the information we've got, it's this or, you know, to the nearest sort of denomination that they can get it to. But it's really like crowdsourcing identification and the amount that people can learn through it. And I think it's that thing. I use it in my yard because I'm terrible with plants. And I've learned so much about just the, you know, what's growing in my yard just through putting up photos and having people sort of help out. So it's a really, it's Facebook without the... um, anti-social comments it's a okay. really really positive sort of interaction you have on these platforms and it's a really good way to get to know what's in your neighborhood your councils and that as well i'm actually looking forward to this now i didn't know this was on so there's because there's also the great southern bioblitz which is a similar thing that they run on iNaturalist and it's pitting off all the southern um, cities and areas against each other that's another way to do it so yeah, so it's a good thing, and really it's scratching the surface, dare I say, of actually connecting ordinary everyday people with, uh, with scientists. And that's the sort of thing that I think we've got opportunities, particularly um, with coastal sand movements and erosion and management of dunes and all of that sort of stuff to actually involve the community in monitoring what's going on uh, and you know, so that we can plan ahead for preventative actions to address uh, the effects of climate change, essentially, which uh, I'm not sure it's been mentioned, but it, it is actually a crisis. <laughs> We've mentioned it <laughs> We've several mentioned times it. on our program, don't worry, <laughs> yeah. um, Now, you mentioned Portfield Bay is being considered a, a kind of de facto municipality for the purposes of this exercise. Well, that's What's according to Doug anyway, so... <laughs> okay. Well, we might check that on that one because yeah. we've got a few weeks before um, the event actually... Yeah, I think regardless off. of that, though... Oh, well, I, I suppose if, uh, any foreshore area, so, but divers, obviously, though, uh, are getting away from that terrestrial habitat, yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, what I'm thinking, that if, if, if this mm. is truly competitive and given the number of active divers... And diving groups around the bay, and you kind of, and, and both embayments as well. Thinking Western Port too. There's there's all sorts of possibilities to um, put in a pretty strong team. Yeah, I think uh, there's probably a, a sense that uh, the Greater Melbourne area is, yep. is a city in itself, yep. uh, internationally speaking, and uh, so Port Phillip Bay is part of that. Yeah, great, fantastic. All right, um, let's talk a bit about citizen science because I know you wanted to talk about that one too. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're, as I mentioned, we're, we do have a crisis. There's no argument about that anymore, fortunately. Uh, we, we've got to that point. And uh, it seems to me, though, that there's lost opportunities to, to be doing some cost-effective monitoring, uh, of it, particularly our coastal assets, uh, the biodiversity along the coast and habitats. Uh, but we haven't quite done the work of stitching together how that can be achieved and what are the best methods. Uh, so coastal managers obviously need information of, in various forms, but there hasn't been a clear definition of what those priorities are and and uh, how best to capture that information. If, you, for example, you had a, a year 10 group from a high school or something going out to do, do an exercise on, on the beach, 
what is the best, most rigorous means of actually co collecting data using a group like that for the purposes that are going to suit those coastal managers? We have to have that conversation. It's really, uh, there's all sorts of citizen science going on, like Coast Snap and you know, the Fluker Post and things like that, and they're all good. Uh, there's various other methods using drones to sort of monitor sand movement, etc. But uh, which are the most cost-effective ways of actually capturing ongoing monitoring rather than just doing a random thing every now and then. Mm. So have you got any answers from coastal managers as far as the information that they're after? Because, I mean, obviously that's going to vary from coast to coast in different areas. Like, are you trying to do something where you actually collate all that and, you know, prioritise for different areas or is that it's still early days yeah, at the I moment? Yeah, I think that's the conversation we're hoping to have, Kate, and, yeah. and also involving traditional owners in that mm. conversation as well so that their priorities are also part of the mix. Uh, you know, so I've got a really holistic sort of uh, approach that uh, uh, will uh, give us really useful data for the future and uh, before it's too late. So you're not allowed to retire, Neil, is what you're saying? No, that's right. Yeah, okay, that's Excellent. good. That's good. We're all safe. <laughs> well, I've got to keep doing the pippy dance for, yes. for as long as it takes. <laughs> what are your plans over the next few weeks, Neil, before we speak with you again? Uh, well, uh, I'm definitely keen to... Um, I've got uh, four students um, from Charles Latrobe College, Year 10 students, and uh, we're going to devise a, a, a method for uh, recording the uh, fragile air breather snails, the estuarine snail populations. Oh, cool. Uh, so we can actually estimate the number of in, within the, the population, the local population, and also what levels they're living at. Too. So uh, whether there's a defined uh, surface level that there's their happy space. Uh, so it'll be fascinating to do that, you know, and I'm hoping we'll have an enjoyable time. And whereabouts are these estuaries? Like where, where do you find the snails? Uh, Obviously well, in an estuary, but whereabouts yeah, well, in Port Phillip? Well, interesting, uh, in, in St Kilda Harbour at St Kilda West Beach, there's yep. a colony there, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is the Cowderoy Street drain outfall. Mm. But definitely Lavertron Creek, uh, they're also over there, and at Altona. So in that, and I found some at Greenwich Bay too uh, uh, last weekend. And so. so I imagine as you start looking, you're going to keep finding them yeah, popping up in places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're looking at... Um, potential changes in their, their distribution? Yeah, well, that's the thing. They Because they have such a narrow niche within the, uh, their habitat, um, as sea levels rise, then that habitat may be displaced, particularly where there's infrastructure that won't allow it to migrate further inland. So uh, that's sort of what we're interested in. Uh, that If that is the case, then it's, it's possible that uh, as a resource for migratory waders, for example, they'll be gone, and that, so that that'll be a problem for that particular group. Yeah, of, definitely uh, flow-on effects and so yeah, on. Yeah, so we want to start those conversations about climate change. Just uh, so we'll have to write a song about uh, do the fragile air breather dance. <laughs> <laughs> that can be your homework between now and when we see you next, Neil. Fantastic, always a pleasure. So many great festivals popping up, Cade. I know, it's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, last yeah. weekend there were just truckloads of them and there's more still underway. I thought we might spend a couple of minutes promoting a few of them. All right, well, you start with the festival promotion because my promotion isn't around festivals. Okay, I'll do a really quick one. Last week um, on the program we had Simon Buttonshaw talking about the Lawn Biennale, Sculpture Biennale, Spirit of Place, and this is actually running, um, we mentioned last weekend, over four consecutive weekends over... Uh, 
over a period of three weeks. And so this is weekend number two. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff happening today. I just wanted to give that one a plug. If you are down that way or wanting to head down that way, beautiful weather to head down to Lawn for the day. Um, there are the uh, Sculpture Scape ephemeral art installations along the Erskine River mouth. That's happening all day. From one till two, there's a themed history discussion. So you think you know Lawn, which looks pretty cool. <laughs> um, uh, that's at Community Connect. And between one and four, bush animals sculpting hay with wool uh, with Murnong Mini at Uniting Church. And then this evening from seven till eight, projection art by Angela Barrett Fragments. So just so many great stuff happening down at Lawn and we'll continue to, to give those um, events a bit of a plug over the next few weeks while they're still on. Um, a couple of other things I want to mention quickly. The Ocean Film Festival is... Uh, uh, yes, I heard you talking last week. Yeah. Last week, yeah. Yeah, last week with director Jemima Robinson. So this is coming up this week. Oh. Yeah, so um, just, again, we've put a link to that on our Facebook page. Go and have a look at our um, promotional stuff um, for the show from last week and you'll see all the links through. But um, events happening this week at both the Astor and at Crown in Melbourne and at various cinemas uh, around Victoria. Yeah, and I wanted to follow on from something last week. You had Ben Cleveland on quickly talking about yes. the program to get anglers in the water snorkelling. Um, that was meant to happen yesterday, but a 20 to 30 knot wind and two foot of swell. You could have actually gone for a surf at St. Leonard's yesterday as oh. opposed to going for a snorkel. Oh, wow. meant that we had to cancel that. The water looked like, as my wife described it, a chai tea. Is <laughs> <laughs> was, Yeah, so not something you want to go snorkelling in. But there is another event happening on the 9th of April at Flint as pier. Now the idea is to try and get anglers into see weedy sea dragons because I have a feeling that'll have quite an impact on them. So if you're interested in helping out whether it's as a, as a tour guide or you're an angler that wants to learn how to snorkel because everything is provided, all the instructions, all the equipment, just jump onto Eventbrite and if you type in Flinders Pier that's going to be one of the first things or snorkeling Flinders Pier that comes up and jump on board. It'd be great to see people there. Brilliant. And let's hope the Easterlies disappear by then. They have been the scourge of anything that faced that direction this summer. There's been a lot of them. Thanks, Kate. Brilliant. And uh, it's with great pleasure now that we welcome back to Radio Marinara from Deakin University, Dr. Prue Francis. Good morning, Prue. Good morning, Brad. Morning, Kate. Good morning, Prue. How are you doing? Very well, and in fact, I've been listening to the show so far, and I think you could have the best social life with all the different events and festivals that are going on at the moment. It sounds amazing. You could just bounce from one to the other, couldn't you? And um, you could. Just, yep, exactly. It's party time. Yeah, it no, is. It's really great, and, and two years of no festivals, and all of a sudden, it, it feels like a fireworks of festivals have just sort of exploded everywhere. So yeah, it's terrific. Yep. Bring um, it on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, ocean literacy. Now, when we had you on the program last, we were talking about the concept of a, bl a blue curriculum and what that means. And um, we're going to pick up where we left off. Yeah, we sure are. So last month I was chatting about the Blue Curriculum and just a bit of a recap for those that might have missed it. It was a toolkit that was released by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, otherwise known as UNESCO. And they put together this toolkit that basically would help any sort of um, policymaker to integrate ocean literacy into school curriculum. And so what was missing in that toolkit was the mention of all the great things that we're doing here in Australia but also just in a recap Australia Australia curriculum as it stands 
doesn't really have much mention of the ocean and the, and the marine life. So we're trying to, my research team and all um, collective group of marine educators in Australia are trying to build that ocean literacy back into the Australian curriculum so that we can, um, you know, we, we live, we're a marine nation, so we need to have this um, embedded into our curriculum. And so but what is missing from that toolkit, and this is where we're going to lead into today's conversation, is um, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So if it was to be applied to the Australian context, we need to sort of adapt it to our local needs and down to the sort of the nitty-gritty individual schools because every every school is sort of different in terms of what they want to do. So where our research team is looking at ways of how we can do that and doing by using children's books as an example. Yeah, and I think that's something that often happens with those big, broad policies is they look fantastic and they read really well, but the actual implementation, as you said, like the nitty-gritty um, is often not thought about and how that's going to go about. So I assume you're sort of filling the gap there, Prue. Is that where you're going? Yeah, that's right. So it's sort of just like you open up a restaurant, but you need people to actually turn up and eat your food. And that's the same sort of concept this toolkit is, that you've got this toolkit, but you need teachers to turn up and implement it. And so one of the barriers that I know if any teachers that are out there listening is thinking, when am I going to have time to do this? And so what we're trying to do, first of all, is sort of recognise what the barriers are for teachers to teach marine science in their classrooms. And, and our research has been specifically targeted at primary school teaching level. And we're sort of finding our data and we're hoping to have this published um, soon. This is by my PhD student Katia Freitas, um, is that we will, our data first of all shows that primary school teachers aren't regularly teaching marine science in the classroom. So we know that, we've got the data for that. But what they also are saying is that they would teach it if they had the increased knowledge. So we've sort of taken on that data to sort of say, okay, well, how can we increase the teacher's knowledge so that they have the confidence to then go and integrate it into their, their curriculum. And so we're looking at ways of how can they do it in a confident way and something that they can relate because they already use a, a type of teaching method in their classroom. And so that's where the children's book idea came about. And we've selected a few children's books where we're have, that has a marine fo focus or an Australian ocean focus and showing how you can read this book but then scaffold it into the school curriculum, not just in the science area but it's that cross-disciplinary approach. And so teachers won't necessarily think, oh, I've got to do an experiment, I don't really understand the concept, but it sort of builds from that children's book and, and builds that confidence out across to those different discipline areas. Prue, how much scope do teachers have um, with the curriculum that they're given to teach? I've just sort of observed with my own kids that when things like marine science, subjects like marine science are taught in schools, it's often as a, an adjunct it's an, an, or an elective or something like that. But to actually embed it into the curriculum, is that something that teachers are depending on various education departments in, in different states or a national curriculum to develop for them? Oh, look, it can, yes, and it can also be done down to the school or the, even the individual teacher. And so what we're seeing just from our own sort of personal observations when we've been going out to schools is if there are integrating marine science, it's generally because 
that particular teacher has an interest in that space or even has a marine biology or marine science degree and so they're using that that knowledge to then integrate it into the curriculum quite well and we what we're sort of finding too is that instead of it sort of being a standalone lesson on one day it tends to be an inquiry-based unit which might be taught over a term and it has um, a flavor in in the literacy space the numeracy art um, and then in that sort of stem space as well so it's not just on science day they teach about it they're actually doing little bits and pieces of it throughout that whole term and and then going out and doing if they can excursions or having incursions into the school so I think it is at the moment teacher uh, and individual driven but what we're hoping to do and hoping to do um, at that bigger scale is to create uh, teacher workshops or professional development opportunities that allows teachers to sort of build up their confidence and their knowledge so that we get more of those individual teachers potentially doing that inquiry-based learning. Uh, I was just going to ask, you know, I've got the student that's working with teachers at the moment and the idea is they're going to be the person that teaches the teachers. When it, this, if this was to be rolled out on a larger scale, who would do the teaching of the teachers? Yeah, good question. So at the moment, we're, it's just a small trial for us. From a, and we're, what we're hoping to do is create evidence-based research that shows the effectiveness of professional development workshops. So down to the teachers' perspectives, we'll be evaluating, but also down to the students' impact of how this um, workshop has had. And so hope, we're hoping that that outcome will then potentially provide the evidence that it needs to sort of go to that bigger scale. And I think that bigger scale potentially is going to come back down to government, um, whether that's state or, or federal, and putting funding towards that to, to sort of get that up to that larger scale because that's what it's going to need to take because obviously um, these things do cost. Yes, and I can immediately see the next uh, next development in this, which is that um, federal government will point at state governments and say it's your responsibility and state governments will do likewise and, <laughs> and this thing will go round and round in circles. So... I guess breaking through that is probably a real challenge for this too. It certainly is, yeah. And this is um, why our group is really sort of focusing on that research evidence base to sort of show that it can work instead of, um, I guess, you know, having this out there and, and, you know, going back to that restaurant analogy is, you know, how do you get the teachers in there? So I think this little trial that we're running will, will allow that evidence to sort of show that, yeah, we can get teachers and this is how effective it actually can be. So, um, yeah, watch this space. That's going to be happening over the next couple of months, running that, that particular workshop. Yeah, and then taking it from that next level too because I think you know, it, it seems to be fairly commonplace for, for you know, the visual beauty of the underwater environment to, to be celebrated at the younger level. So, you know, kinder kids have got paper mache jellyfish hanging from their classrooms and, you know, they, they make, I don't know, octopus out of egg cartons and all that kind of stuff. And then they get to primary school and you see, you see these themes sort of emerging there as well, but then it gets lost and, and I guess that's an important bridge that really needs to be addressed here. Yeah, and very much so. And, you know, we are now showing data that here in Australia, you know, children are selecting or being less interested in that STEM um, field or career base. So capturing that interest and that wonder and, you know, encouraging them to ask why is that happening and how is that happening and having that context that 
for the underwater world is because we rely in Australia as a marine nation, we do rely on the ocean. So that I think it's really important, even if they don't go into that sort of particular career, it's so important to just learn about our ocean and why we rely on it, how we need to look after it. And, um, and to do that, yeah, as you said, it starts kindergarten, but it also then needs to follow through to primary school and then scaffold up into our secondary uh, year levels. Yeah, and then from there, the tertiary sector is kind of, in, in a much stronger position, but it's that it's that gap at that secondary level, I guess, and high primary. So can you talk us through some of these workshops for teachers that are coming up? Yeah, so the workshops we've got, so it's a small trial that um, Cartier is running and it's going to be located down at Queenscliff. Um, it's going to be sort of a series of days over the weekend that um, we'll sort of be capturing. So we're hoping that teachers will be able to give up their time over the weekend just for a few hours here and there. But, you know, going out on a rocky shore and on, on a boat is not a bad way to, to, to do a professional development, I, I don't think. And, uh, and so what we're doing is collecting evidence from that particular workshop um, through the series of yeah, teachers' perspectives, but then also seeing that what we sort of build and give to them is going to be a teacher's resource that's being produced with that workshop, uh, giving that resource to the teachers that participate and then the hope is that they'll then implement it during the time as the workshop is progressing in their classroom and then we'll also collect data on the students' um, knowledge beforehand and then also after that and that's going to be through a series of um, drawings that the children are going to do. So uh, it's... Yeah, it's going to be, I think, probably running through, hopefully, we haven't got solid dates yet, but we're trying to get that sorted now through June through to July. So hopefully later in the year uh, I can report back on, um, in fact, we'll get Cartier in to come in and report back on, on how effective that workshop was. What, uh, what level of um, teaching are you looking at? Is it sort of in that late primary, secondary level? Uh, so we're targeting primary school, so it can actually be anywhere from uh, grade, uh, prep teachers all the way up to grade six, and um, and just targeting the local schools at the moment. Um, in that, so we're based Ballerine Peninsula, Geelong, and Surf Coast area uh, because I guess this is, you know, we we want to, to go bigger scale, but at the moment what we want to do is produce that evidence-based research, and so this is a small trial to to then hopefully scaffold it to bigger, better, greater, and open for all I guess into the future if we can get um, the funding to do that. Fantastic so if we've got teachers listening right now they teach down on the Bellarine or surrounds and are thinking yet yeah, this looks fantastic I'd love to do something like this I know I'm going to get support from from my school principal to take part in this what's the best thing that they can do how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, so since this is a, is a research study, um, we've had to contact the, the schools directly. So um, we've already sent out our recruitment, so it, it'll be done directly through there. We actually um, are following our sort of research ethics protocols based on that, and um, so I do believe that went out, out last week. So um, if the schools were part of that, they would have been contacted through that means. Okay, so great. then if they're interested, it means that they should be getting in touch with their principal and then the... Um, That's correct. That and saying, come on, why aren't we doing this? Yep. And then <laughs> Prue's going to be flat out. One quick question for you, Prue, is that you, talking today, there's a lot about gathering the evidence, gathering the proof, putting together this story of how we need it and what, um, you know, making a strong argument for the adding it into the curriculum. Once you've got all that evidence, you almost have to embark upon a campaign to get that um, implemented. How Have you thought that far ahead yet or is that something you're like, well, let's wait till we get there first 
Look, we are thinking in that way and we're sort of seeking ways of what sort of government-based funding we could seek to sort of get it to that larger scale. And at the same time, yeah, sort of, I guess, running this trial will, will help sort of contribute towards that. So I don't have the answer as to where that's going to come from, um, but that's definitely the next step moving forward is to then take it to a larger scale, um, particularly if, if the evidence is actually showing that this is effective and this is sort of um, where it needs to... You know, we've got the curriculum, but we also need to help teachers to teach that, that particular curriculum and give them that support. And I think that's sort of where that foundation needs. And whether that happens um, in the classrooms, it could also happen at the tertiary level for pre-service teachers that, um, you know, that it might be science education is their focal point. Perhaps that could be a a PD implemented into university level too. So there's yeah, different ways of where it goes from here and we haven't quite got the answer, I guess, at this point in Which time. is great. It's very exciting for us because we're basically going on this journey with you. Yeah, exactly. Gonna, I know. You're going to yep, keep us all so. informed. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Peru. That's been great. We look forward to catching up with you in a few weeks' time and uh, keep talking this very, very important conversation about ocean literacy through the year. Yeah, brilliant. And thank you for having me on again. And this is what helps is having this conversation uh, to the greater community. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see what this trial does and, um, and, and go from there. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Prue. Thank Speak you, with you Prue. soon. Dr. Prue Francis there from Deakin University. Okay, Cade, right, look, got a few minutes left. And while you're down at Queenscliff, why don't you head over to Point Lonsdale and go for a bit of a rock pool ramble and see if you can find any sea slugs. Nice. Because, yeah, do you like that? Yeah, I do. The um, 12th... <laughs> The 12th um, Victorian Sea Slug Census is on kicking off on Friday the 25th of March and it is now running for 10 days. Um, so it runs through to the 3rd of April. What we found is that we were running it for like four days and I think the initial one was just over a day. But um, weather being weather, it doesn't always abide by what you want. So we've extended it out to 10 days. And so how that works is if you're out and about and you see some sea slugs or you go searching for them, take a photo and we're now submitting them via the iNaturalist platform that Neil was talking about earlier. And it made me think it's, we've sort of thrown around this thing about the iNaturalist platform a little bit. And I thought, oh, maybe I should just give a bit of a potted history as to what it is and how it's being used. So do you ever look at stuff, Brian, if you go for a beach walk or anything and you're like, what the hell is that? Yep. And you often have your phone in your pocket. The way to solve that is you take a photo of it, you take a few photos of it, you post it to iNaturalist and you know, identify it as best you can. And what you'll find is that people are more than willing to help tell you what it is. How fantastic. It is absolutely brilliant. I use it for so many things. And so there's a lot of projects out there. There's a really great one, Australian Fishers. So it's run by Mark McGrother from the um, Australian Museum. And it's now got hundreds of thousands of views. There's been a whole lot of range extensions. So fish being, like people taking photos of fish that aren't usually found in these areas. And people are uploading those images. So we're learning more about climate change and the effects of thing moving, things moving. Um, and iNaturalist is described as an online social network of people sharing biodiversity information to help help others learn about nature. My version is that it's Facebook for nerds who love to know about the world. Because basically you're using images to tell a story about what's in your world and what you're seeing. And it started off as a master's project. So it actually started as a master's project in the States, 
three people got together, they decided, oh, we can use this information better. Um, and it's now part of the Californian Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society now run this. And now the data, your photos can be protected. If you're a photographer, you can actually protect your photos, but the data is there for people to use. And so there's over 2,000 scientific publications have come out of this information wow. being out there. Yeah, that have used this data. Um, and all these range extensions and introduced species being found. There was a great one. I know we spoke about sunfish a few weeks ago. Someone found a sunfish washed up on the beach at Malakuta and posted it to iNaturalist. And when, in the course of an afternoon, they'd been given some um, ethanol vials and something to dig out a DNA sample. They went back, grabbed the DNA sample and then sent it to the Victorian Museum because they wanted to start getting more DNA specimens from it. And that was just from one photo. There was this stream of conversation that went on in the post because you can converse with people. And Malakut is pretty remote. Like to be able to get all that kit to them in that time period is But amazing. what it was, they found someone nearby who had ethanol. Ah. They found little jars. They gave them something to scoop out that sample, put it in. And you know, they're now learning about more about the distribution of sunfish just from one photo. Wow. So there's all these amazing stories coming around from your photos. And photos are powerful. There's a whole story within that image. And that's what iNaturalist is capturing. Well, I'm thinking about... Um, Rob's comment to us about spotting a stonefish in the Noosa River mouth. Um, that was, I thought that too. And so there's one, I've set up one in Victoria, it's Marine Life of Victoria. And the idea is you take your photo, post it to the project. And then what that means is that everyone's involved in the project will see it. And then that means they come along and sort of help you with the identification. But the other thing is you have taxonomists coming in telling you why it's this and not this. Yeah. And so you're actually learning as you're going yeah. along and really powerful tool. And it's something as a scientist, you think you should know everything, but I don't. So none I, us, none of us do. None of us know <laughs> much at all. And this sort of is a way to sort of branch out and talk to other people. That's brilliant. Yeah. So that was my potted history of iNaturalist and it linked in well with everything we spoke about today absolutely thanks Kate you're welcome Brian it was great to be back in the studio great to have you here and what a great way to end the show as well looking forward to having you back in soon I'll be here excellent thank you so much Kent today for panelling for us um, big shout out to Rachel hope you're feeling better uh, and uh, thanks to our guest today to uh, Dr Prue Francis and of course to Neil Blake on our program next week we'll be cabin boy and farm Rob hopefully Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.